Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. morning. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. While you're turning there, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, now as we continue on in worship through the preaching of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit now would come and move and work among us. Lord, I believe that this passage this morning has the potential to be very life-shaping, eternity-altering, and so I confess that I need your help, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would anoint the preaching of the Word, as the old Puritans used to say, that you would give me the unction of the Spirit this morning, and I pray for the heart's of the people here gathered this morning, some in Christ, some not. And so, Lord, would you do your supernatural work of giving faith and opening eyes and strengthening faith, causing us to see and behold the glory of Christ together this morning, and may he be exalted to his rightful place. We pray this. All in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 7 is where we are this morning. And we're going to be looking together as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount at verses 12 to 14. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 verses 12 to 14 where our text here this morning as we are entering now into... What is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount? The text before us this morning is perhaps both one of the best known and best loved teachings of Jesus, paired together with what is one of probably the most controversial or hated teachings of Jesus as well. Isn't that ironic? One of the best-known, best-loved passages joined to, paired with one of the most hated, or at least one of the most controversial teachings of Jesus as well. And by best-known, I mean, verse 12, the golden rule. Maybe you've heard it called that before, known by Christians and non-Christians alike. I mean, who hasn't heard this before? You hear it all the time. Do to others what you would have them do unto you. What parent hasn't said that to their kids? You hear it all over the place. But it's paired with here what is maybe the most controversial teaching of Jesus, at least if they know any of the teachings of Jesus at all, this singular 
exclusive claim Jesus makes there in verses 13 and 14 of the narrow way. Enter by, he says, the narrow gate. Reminds me of several instances I remember hearing about from the life of Gandhi. You remember Gandhi? Gandhi, he, he was a man who rejected the Christian faith. He despised, really, the Christian faith. And yet, he had a very high esteem and appreciation for Jesus. So, Gandhi at least was either wildly inconsistent, I'm going to take some of what I like and reject the rest, or he was ignorant of Jesus' actual teachings and what he actually said, accepting some of the things he liked, rejecting the things he didn't like. Sort of like C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, Lord argument. You remember that? That either Jesus, he was a liar... He lied about everything he said. He was a lunatic. He was a crazy man. Or he was exactly who he claimed to be. And if he is one of the first two, if he's a liar, if he's a lunatic, then you should reject everything he said. But if he is Lord, if he is God, then you must accept everything that he said. And everything that he claimed. And the same is true here in our text this morning. You cannot truly accept verse 12, or really any of the other teachings of Jesus, only the ones you like, while rejecting verses 13 and 14, this exclusive, narrow way of the kingdom. Either it's all or it's nothing. And the shocking thing about what Jesus says here this morning is that the exclusive way of his kingdom, this this path that he is calling you and I to follow him in, if we're we're going to follow Jesus, is, he says, both narrow and hard. It's narrow and it's hard. I wonder if you were to summarize the Christian life for someone in two words, let's say it's an unbeliever, right, on an elevator, elevator pitch. Two words to summarize the Christian life. What would you say? Jesus says the experience of the Christian life is narrow and hard. Narrow and hard. And yet, as we're going to see this morning, It's the only way to true life. It's the only way to life. Matthew chapter 7, if you have your place, would you mind standing with me out of honor for the reading of God's word? I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, and if you'll allow me, I actually want to read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount down to verse 29. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, them, does not do them excuse me, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. As as we've said on several occasions here in the study of the Sermon on the Mount, This sermon is divided into three sections. Three sections. Section 1, if you look back, chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, which we called, if you remember, the blessings of the kingdom. These were the attitudes of, as well as the blessings promised to Jesus' kingdom citizens. The blessings of the kingdom, that was section 1. Section 2, chapter 5, verse 17 All the way to chapter 7, or yeah, verse 12, which is really the bulk of the sermon. It's the body, you might say, of the sermon. It's it's the ethical instructions of the sermon where Jesus here, he is outlining this surpassing righteousness that's necessary if you're going to enter his kingdom. Where he gives these six examples from the Old Testament law, if you remember, Go back and look with me there. Anger, lust, divorce, truth-telling, retaliating, loving my enemies. Those six examples, as well as the warnings. Notice in chapter 6 against self-righteousness and materialism and anxiety and judgmentalism. All of which, think about this, make life harder. It's harder. It's easy to just let your anger go. It's easy to just give yourselves to the lusts of the flesh, right? You follow this way, it's going to make life harder. And now here this morning, he comes to the third and final section of this sermon. Chapter 7, verse 13, all the way to chapter 7, verse 27, the end of the chapter which is really now the beginning of the end. This is the conclusion where Jesus now wants to apply everything he has been teaching in this sermon. 
Everything he's been saying up to this point, now he wants to apply it. He wants to bring it home. And, and, and so like any good preacher, he, he is driving his point home here. The, these teachings here of Jesus are not random. They're not just this unconnected group of sayings. No, he is going somewhere. He has a point. He has something that he is building toward. And now... He wants to drive his listeners, us, this morning, to a decision that must now be made in light of this entire sermon. A decision you have to make. Some people say, well, I don't like decisional evangelism. Jesus does. He's calling you to make a decision. He's calling you here to make a choice. There's a choice that has to be made. I understand what they mean. He's calling us to a decision. You cannot remain neutral. And in this conclusion now here, Jesus is going to give us several illustrations, contrasting pictures here. There's four of them, actually, that show us the only two possible responses to his sermon. There's only two responses. Notice them. These pictures here. First, those are pictured here, those two responses are pictured as two gates, verses 13 and 14, the narrow way and the broad way, or the broad gate. Two trees, notice, verses 15 to 20, there's a good tree with good fruit, and there's a bad tree with bad fruit. There are two confessions as well, notice verse 21 to 23, there's a false confession that just says, Lord, Lord. And there's a genuine confession that backs it up by doing the will of the Father. And then finally, there are two foundations. Notice in verses 24 to 27. There's a house built on the rock, and there's a house built on the sand. The words of Christ or anything else. So he is illustrating here for us the pathway that leads to the kingdom of heaven. And he wants you and I to know for certain that we are on the right path. So so he's, he's applying now his teaching. How do I know if I'm on the right path? Well, does it feel narrow? Does it feel hard? Is there good fruit? Is there a confession that's backed up with a life style that shows it? Are you building your life on the teaching of Jesus, the words of Christ? That's how you know. So he's calling for a decision. In light of all that I said, what choice are you going to make? And the path that he's calling us to, he uses a metaphor of a gate that is narrow and hard. And what he's doing is he summarizing the effect that the entire Sermon on the Mount is meant to have on your soul. What is the Christian life like? Narrow and hard. Sign me up. But the point of the passage is that even though it's narrow and hard, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because of what awaits you at the end of that path. 
First of all, allow me to address verse 12. I want to focus mainly on verses 13 and 14, but I had planned to address this last week and I ran out of time. Go figure. But verse 12 is a very important key verse in the Sermon on the Mount, a very well-known verse. It's often referred to as the golden rule. Now, interestingly, do you know why it's called the golden rule? The great Matthew scholar R.T. France says that it isn't because of the preciousness of this principle. Sometimes that we think that's why it's called the golden rule. It's a precious principle. But actually, it's because during the third century, the Roman emperor Alexander Severus came across this teaching, and he actually had it inscribed in gold over his throne, in his throne room. That's why it's called the golden rule. In fact, this teaching, or at least a version of this teaching, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, is found in other religions and belief systems as well. For example, Confucius said, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Or Buddha. Buddha said, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Or even the rabbi Hillel, Jewish rabbi who was a contemporary of Jesus, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. And then he says this, this is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary, go and learn. So it's a very popular, very widely used, very beloved saying, but there is something quite unique about Jesus' words here. Two things briefly I just want you to notice about verse 12 before we jump into verses 13 and 14. First, I just want you to notice this is a summarizing verse. It's a summarizing verse. Verse 12, notice it begins with the word so, or some of your translations may say therefore. Now that, that's a very important linking word, a very important connecting word. Why? Why does Jesus here use the word so or therefore to introduce this saying? And the answer is because he is pointing us back to everything he has been teaching since chapter 5 or 17. In other words, verse 12 is a summary of everything Jesus has taught in this section. From chapter 5 or 17 all the way to chapter 7 verse 11. It's a summary of the entire ethical teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 12. So, or therefore, because of everything I've said to you, do this. I want you to treat everyone the way you yourself would like to be treated. I want you to love everyone in the same way that you would want to be loved. So think about it. Every issue, every topic that Jesus has addressed here is really just an application of this. Do to others what you want them to do to you. All of these different topics, it's really just one topic. What's the topic? Love. Love. You want others to be angry with you? 
You want your spouse to be faithful to you? You want others to lie to you? You want others to retaliate against you? Jesus says, if you'll just simply do to others what you want done to you, then this is a summary of this entire sermon. This verse is a summary of all the teachings I've been giving you here. But it isn't just a summary of all the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also a summary of the entire Bible. Look there again, verse 12. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Same phrase, law and prophets, is used back, chapter 5, verse 17. So this is the bread of the sandwich, everything in between it, right here, that phrase, law and the prophets, is really shorthand for the whole Old Testament. All of the commands of the Old Testament, if you had to pick one, if you had to boil it down to one command, all of it, and how you relate to others, it would be this, whatever you want others to do to you, do that to them. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say this. Notice this, Matthew 22, verse 35. You remember a lawyer comes to him and asks him a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, what you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment relating to God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. How? As yourself. On these two commandments depend what? All the law and the prophets. It only boils down to one. Love. That's a summarizing command. Wouldn't you say? Here's the second thing about verse 12. It's an impossibly demanding verse as well. This one simple command, the summarizing command, is to guide all Christian ethics, all Christian teaching, all Christian decision making. (laughs) If this were to be in the forefront of your mind and everything you thought, everything you did, everything you said, you would be obedient to every single biblical command. So how are you doing? I want you to treat everyone in your life friend or foe, all of the time, the way you want to be treated. How you doing? It is limitless in its demands. It's limitless in its scope. Do you feel the impossible standard of that command? And it is impossible apart from the grace of God. Apart from the transforming, empowering grace of God. This kind of love is only possible if it flows from a heart that has been transformed by the love of God in Christ. We love because He first loved us. In this is love. Not that you have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus demonstrated this kind of neighbor Love and this command is really all we need. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you.
That's the law and the prophets. That's the whole Bible. That's all the Sermon on the Mount. And with that transitional verse in verse 12, notice he turns now in verses 13 and 14 to his conclusion. Look there. These four images. And the first metaphor, the first image he uses is of a gate or a path. And he describes it as narrow and hard. Now, that's a hard sell. (laughs) Jesus, that's not going to win you very many converts. I mean, we don't like things narrow, do we? Do you like narrow, confining things? Squeezing into those, you know, pants, a dress, squeezing into that tiny bed, squeezing into that compact car, squeezing into, you know, that tiny house that's overcrowded. We don't like that. Anybody in here claustrophobic? We don't like tiny, confining spaces. And we don't like things hard. Kids, do you want the easy chore or do you want the hard chore? We don't like this. And yet Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come into my kingdom, it will be exclusively narrow and hard. And in order to motivate us to follow him, here's what he does. Notice, he gives us a command Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, and then he gives two incentives to obey this command. He gives us two reasons. The first reason, look there at the middle of verse 13, for, here's the reason, and it's a negative reason, why we shouldn't follow the broad, easy way, what it's going to lead to. And then he gives us another reason, another incentive, verse 14, for, and here's a positive reason, why we should follow the narrow and hard way. So let's walk through those just three headings, the command, the negative reason, the positive reason. First, the command. Verse 13, notice the command, enter by the narrow gate, enter by the the narrow gate. Now, the, the first thing to notice here is that this narrow gate leads to something else, right? Enter by the narrow gate. So he's, he's telling us to enter this gate because this gate is going to lead us somewhere. So the question is then, what are we being called to enter? What, what does Jesus want us to enter into? So we need to try and discover what he means by that word enter. And the best way to do that is to look at the context. If you were to look at the context, you would find that Jesus actually uses that word enter twice already, or he will in the Sermon on the Mount, besides this place. He's going to use it chapter 7, verse 21, and he's going to use it in chapter 5 and verse 20. So let's look at both of those and see what he means. What does he mean? What is Jesus calling us here to enter? Well, first, look ahead, chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord. Now stop right there. He's saying not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everyone who claims my name, who claims to follow me, will, here's our word, enter, enter what? The kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What are the implications of that? Not everyone who claims to be a Christian will actually make it into heaven. Not everyone who claims it will actually make it. That on the last day, when they stand before God, they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So then, who will enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, notice verse 21. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. They're the only ones who are getting in. You see it there? Okay, here's the other place that word enter is used in the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly, it's at the beginning of this major section here spanning from chapter 5, verse 17 to chapter 7, verse 12. That's no accident. This is the bulk of his teaching where he's laying out for us this necessary kingdom lifestyle. Look back chapter 5, verse 20. You remember? I mean, you, you should have this memorized by now. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds, not quantitatively, but qualitatively, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, here's our word, enter, enter what? The kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is speaking here of entering the kingdom of heaven. That's what this gate will lead to. It will lead to the kingdom of heaven on the last day. So he's talking here about entering heaven, God's eternal kingdom, not, not as it is now, as it is to come. And ver chapter 5, verse 20, unless you have a real righteousness that is flowing from a changed heart that conforms to the words of the Sermon on the Mount, you won't make it into my kingdom. You won't enter. That's what he's saying. And in chapter 7, verse 21... You will only enter my kingdom if you obey. If you do the will of my Father. Verse 21, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things. And Jesus said, hold up. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You might have claimed my name. You might have said you were mine. You might have done all of these religious things, but you didn't obey me. You didn't do the will of my Father in heaven as I have just been 
describing it for you here for the last three chapters. And therefore, you cannot enter. Some of you are squirming. And in verse 13, Jesus is saying, I want you to enter. Enter. Come into my eternal kingdom. Sit with me at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Enjoy my presence in my kingdom forever. Don't be like those who just claim my name. Don't be like those who just, you know, they attend on Sundays. If they don't have something better to do, you know, they do some religious things. No, enter. Okay, how? How do I enter? By the narrow gate. That's how you enter. So then what is the narrow gate? Glad you asked. In context, the narrow gate is really accepting and obeying the teachings of Jesus. Now you're really squirming. Accepting and obeying the teachings of Jesus. So chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is saying, here are my commandments. Here's the way of my kingdom. Here's my teachings. These are the things you must put off. These are the things you must put on. No anger. No lust. No frivolous divorce. And those who are truly saved... My kingdom citizens are those who must repent and believe. They must receive my free grace. They must come poor in spirit. They must come broken over their sin. And they walk through the narrow gate of actually obeying and submitting themselves to my lordship. Of trusting in me and submitting to my teachings. And this conclusion now here, chapter 7, verse 13 and following, they will bear good fruit, they will do the will of my Father, and they will hear these words of mine, and they'll obey them. That is the narrow gate. And that is the gate we must enter if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to come into my kingdom, Jesus says, this is the way you have to come in. Trusting and obeying. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Verse 13, that word narrow, look there, means this way is restrictive. In contrast to the, the broad or the, the broad gate, the broad way. In other words, there's certain things that have to be left behind. Certain things that have to be left at the door. It's, it's restrictive. And it's exclusive. In fact, th this is, notice the definite article, the narrow gate. The narrow gate. There aren't many gates. There is one and only one gate. It is it is exclusive, it is narrow, it is restrictive. And if, if you want to enter in through that gate, then you have to leave off certain things. 
the broad ways of the world. And, verse 14, look at this. This way is hard. Some translations say difficult, meaning what? It isn't easy. It is much easier to go the way of the world rather than following the path and the way of Jesus. So what is the narrow gate? It is hearing and accepting and obeying the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That is the only way in. But then, notice, in hopes of incentivizing us to enter in the narrow gate, he gives us next a negative and a positive reason why you should enter through the narrow gate rather than go the broad way. Heading number two, the negative reason. Verse 13, why should we enter the narrow gate? Look at verse 13. Enter the narrow gate for, here's the reason, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So where does this road lead? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's the way many go. So verse 13, the, the broad path, the easy path, Jesus says, is the way that many are going to go. Those who enter by it are many. This is, this is the crowd. This is the majority. This is the popular path. The vast number of humanity have absolutely no problem with the broad, easy way. Many will go that way. Why? Because there's no boundaries. Fewer restrictions. There's more room. Ah, right? New Testament commentator Charles Quarles comments, most will choose the path that gives them the greatest moral latitude. The freedom to live as they desire, whether or not God approves. Is that not a description of our culture today? Why do they choose the broad path? Because it's more spacious, right? This week we were driving home from a conference in Springfield. The family was, and it was pouring rain. And I'll tell you, it was much less stressful, much less nerve-wracking on that big, broad highway as it was on the narrow two-lane road. Broad and easy. But Jesus says, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Why? Why not? Verse 13. Because that path only leads to destruction. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the destruction he's talking about here is eternal destruction in hell. 
friends, we have to remember that there is an eternity that is awaiting you beyond this life. And for the majority of the world, they will enter into eternal destruction forever in hell. The majority. Now, that isn't the first time in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has pictured this destruction for us. Where he's described it for us. In fact, he's already mentioned it on several occasions. Let me show you what I mean. Just go back with me for a moment. Chapter 5, verse 22. Remember this? How convicting was this? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says... You fool will be liable to what? The hell of fire. Got an anger problem? Yelling at your kids all the time? That's narrow. Jesus says, he's clear, if, if this is what characterizes your life, this is what describes you. You walk in a pattern of disobeying me. And at the end of your life, the end result for you is the hell, fire, where God's wrath, his just, holy judgment will be poured out on you for all of eternity. Destruction. Chapter 5, look at verse 27. You remember this one? Oh my. Men, were you convicted by this? Women, were you convicted by this? Chapter 5, verse 27, where Jesus here again is describing the narrow way of his kingdom. You must gouge out your eye. You must cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. You got to mortify it. You got to kill it. You got to fight that sin in your life, or you will be destroyed. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be what? Thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to what? Going to hell. Do you see? Hell. Wrath. Eternal destruction. Judgment. Forever. And Jesus says, I don't care how easy the broad road seems. I don't care how easy it is. If you want to walk through my narrow gate... A careful Christian life that is obedient to my hard and difficult way. If you don't do that, you will be damned. If you don't obey Him in this life, you can cry, Lord, Lord, all you want to. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Why? 
because you didn't do the will of my father. And he will shut the door of the kingdom of heaven on you forever. And you will be destroyed forever in hell. I remember, I remember Keith in seminary. Keith, he was a friend. He was a, a neighbor that lived just behind us. He had a godly, wonderful wife. I mean, he was getting a seminary degree. He wanted to be a pastor. He made a clear profession of faith. He had a zeal for the gospel and theology, and yet he would not leave a life immersed in sexual immorality. And he would come to me in tears, seemingly broken over his sin. Help me, I need accountability. This rampant pornography addiction in his life. And yet he would not quit. He wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't cut it off and tear it out. And he was in bondage to it, even though he shed tears over it. And sure enough, that sin gave way to adultery, divorce, and he left the faith. But here's the scariest thing of all. Keith knew he was on the broad road. And there may be some of you here this morning who think you are on the narrow road and you're not. Beloved, these warnings are for us. He is preaching to his disciples. The one who is saved. The one who has saving faith is the one who endures to the end. And listen to me, it would be the height of hatred. It would be unloving for me if I didn't tell you that you will not be saved unless you press on and persevere in the teachings and commands of Jesus to the end. I don't care how much theology you read. Jesus doesn't care. If you don't Bow the knee of your life to him in obedience. You'll be destroyed. And that will be the path of many, he says. Those who enter the narrow gate are those who hear and apply the words of Jesus. That's the negative reason. The broad way leads to destruction. But then, third, the positive reason. Look at verse 14. Why should we obey Jesus and follow his path? Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Eternal life. And those who find it are few. There's only a few. So why obey? Why follow? Because it's the only path that leads to eternal life. This way. First of all, just notice how upfront and honest he is about his path. 
The gate is narrow and the gate is hard. You got to know that out of the gate. No pun intended. What is it going to be like to follow you, Jesus? Here's what it's going to be like if you want to follow me. It's going to be narrow and it is going to be hard. My way is exclusive. My way is restrictive. There are things you got to leave behind. There's sins that you got to put to death in your life. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, think about this. Is there been really any area of our life that has been left untouched? Any area. Anger, lust, marriage, loving my enemies, fleeing self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Yes, I want you praying. Yes, I want you giving. Yes, I want you fasting. But I don't want you to be seen. That's hard. That's narrow. Don't, don't be hypocritical. Don't be judgmental. Don't be anxious. Don't be materialistic. It's a very narrow course of obedience. This is my path, he says. There aren't many paths. There's one. And... It doesn't make your life any easier. In fact, should you choose to enter my narrow gate, far from making your life easier, it's actually going to make your life harder. I mean, it is much easier to give yourself to lust, to give yourself to anger and lies and hypocrisy. It's much harder to be loving self-controlled, holy, truthful, faithful to your spouse and to your promises. Kids, it's harder to obey your parents than to lie and deceive them. It's hard to stand for the gospel in the workplace. It's hard to take the side of righteousness and truth while the culture is swimming and spiraling in sexual perversion. It's harder. But notice the outcome. The end of this narrow hard path. Notice the incentive. Why should you choose this narrow path? Because he says it is going to lead to eternal life. Glory forever in my kingdom. The way is narrow and hard that leads to life. In fact, you don't, you don't even have to step outside the Sermon on the Mount to see what this eternal life is that Jesus is promising here. Just go, go back for a moment. Back to the very beginning, chapter 5. Look at these beatitudes here for just a moment in chapter 5. Look what he says here. The promises, the blessings of the kingdom. He says, you, if you come poor and needy, recognizing your spiritual poverty and grieving and mourning over your sin, you're going to experience the eternal comfort of God forever. Sin, evil, suffering, gone forever. Only eternal comfort. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to receive eternal satisfaction and joy in the presence of God forever. You're going to receive mercy You're going to see God. Right now, our sinful eye, we can't see the fullness of God's 
glory. I mean, I just think about, you know, that scene from the Raiders of the Lost Ark where their faces just like melt, right? We can't do that in the presence of the holy, transcendent God. But there's coming a day where we're going to bask in his presence and see his face forever. If you're meek, you're going to inherit the world. What are you doing? Well, I'm hanging out in my property. What's your property? Europe. Asia. It's mine. Your reward is great in heaven. You'll be called sons of God. It's amazing. Do you see? The reason we attend Jesus' narrow, particular, hard way is because it's the only way that leads to eternal life. Two reflections as we close. Two reflections. First of all, I am stressing, no, Jesus is stressing, the Christian's need to obey without compromising the free grace of the gospel. Jesus is stressing the Christian's need to obey without compromising the free grace of the gospel. Jesus in this sermon is emphasizing our need to obey his words, to do the will of his Father, his commands, and that emphasis doesn't in any way jeopardize the gospel that says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ and his finished work alone. No, we have to take in all the Bible has to say. It is all authoritative. It is all God's word. And scripture is absolutely clear that if you have been justified by grace, you will be transformed by grace and empowered by grace to obey. It's clear. I don't know if you've seen this viral video going around on TikTok. Don't worry, I'm not on TikTok. Of this guy, he's actually called the TikTok pastor. Sadly, he's got over 5 million views or followers who claims that Jesus and Paul preached a different gospel. And it's laughable because this is nothing new. <laughs> People have been, had this misconception since the church began. And what that view fails to do is to see all of this book as the word of God and to let the Bible balance itself out. Let the Bible balance itself out. Here's what I mean. Some can come to the Sermon on the Mount and they find a lot of ethical moral instructions here. And so they come to conclude that it lays out for us a series of conditions that must be met if I'm going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so entering the kingdom of heaven is about obedience that merits my entrance into the kingdom. While Paul, on the other hand, preached, no, it's by faith alone, grace alone. 
You see what I mean? And what that fails to see is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already insisted that only those who are poor in spirit, who come recognizing their spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, that's the first verse of the sermon, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 3. Only those who are broken and grieved over their sin will actually be able to be forgiven and comforted by God. Chapter 5, verse 4. Or even as we saw last week, it's only those who ask and seek and knock for the characteristics described here that God gives. And thus, that view leads to this superficial reading of the Sermon on the Mount and really a superficial understanding of salvation. True saving faith must result in obedience to Christ. And then we discover that this is the constant refrain throughout all the New Testament, not just the words of Jesus. Paul, Peter, James, John. I mean, Paul says clearly, we're justified by faith alone. Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, and then in chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can those who die to sin still live in it? You can't. The New Testament is clear on this. This is the constant refrain. True saving faith must result in the narrow way of obedience to Christ. Now, why do I emphasize that? Here's why. Because I don't want you to be deceived. I love you too much. I don't want you to be deceived thinking you're on the narrow path when you're not. So that's what he's emphasizing. Here's the second. Jesus is stressing, I am stressing, that non-Christians need to make a decision. You've got to make a choice. What path are you going to take? What gate are you going to enter? So I'm speaking to those who don't know Christ or maybe those who claim to be Christians. You know, you grew up in the church. Your parents are Christians. You're religious. You know, you attend a Sunday service sometimes. Maybe you go to a Bible study. You pray. You read theology books. You name the name. And yet, there's no reality of it in your life. Jesus isn't the central defining person of your life. There's no change. There's nothing different about you that leads you to obey Jesus from a transformed heart and life. That's who I'm talking to. And if that's you, then what Jesus is doing here is he's calling you to the point of decision. Will you follow me? Really, he's calling you to count the costs. The cost, if you do follow him, it's going to be narrow and hard. But the cost, if you don't follow him, eternal destruction in hell. Jesus' way is narrow and hard, and that requires you to repent and turn from your sin, and to put your trust in Christ, and to submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's pray.
Father, I pray your word would bear much fruit this morning. Oh, help, it, help us, Lord, for those in Christ to be reminded to press on in the narrow and hard way. Those apart from Christ, Lord, open their eyes to see and to enter in through faith and repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.